Hey guys, welcome to our Soul Fam podcast, where I interview space holders from all over the world. I'm your host. My name is Carolina, and I am the Connection Catalyst. I help spiritual entrepreneurs experience deeper connection with themselves, with others, and with the whole universe. Today on the show, we have Mira Taylor, the integrative therapist, subconscious medium, and organizational wellness consultant. Welcome to the show, Mira. How are you doing? I am wonderful. Thank you so, so much for having me. And thank you for all the energy and time and, and intention that you've put into this amazing podcast that I know is truly helping make the world a better place. Oh, I'm really wishing so that this podcast helps people. And we always set an intention like this. And so let's hope that our listeners will get the most out of this conversation. And it's going to be really, really uh, nice. So let's start with a little bit of your backstory. Like, how did you become the therapist? What has led you to this journey and this mission of helping people? Like, when did it start? So somewhere along the way, I realized that I've always been that person to a lot of people in my life um, and that it was just a skill set that I really had. Interestingly enough, I really started actually in marketing um, and I realized as I was working in marketing that the thing I truly, truly loved most about it was the psychology. Um, and, you know, kind of along the way, I realized, well, I'm really good at this. It's really something that I enjoy, but marketing feels like a space where I'm using it in a way that doesn't feel congruent with like my spirit with, you know, it felt like exploitative, like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm creating illusions that convince people to buy things they don't need necessarily, um, or just sort of like feeding into, uh, you know, unhealthy egos or, you know, playing on unhealthier aspects of the human, human mind and spirit through marketing. And so I asked myself, okay, well, I love doing this. And it feels like a purpose for me. How can I take the skill or ability and, you know, make it something that does feel congruent with me and shapes a purpose for me that I, I can continue to grow and develop in. And so Moon and Rune Wellness was born. Um, and so I'm very thankful now to be using that skill set to sell people themselves. And that's it, you know, to help people really accept their wholeness as they are and to really deconstruct a lot of the existing belief systems or thought patterns that may be limiting them and sort of keeping them from their potential, but also just in a practical way, the ones that affect their daily life in, in small, but uh, really bigger ways, like the relationships we have with ourselves and our family, the relationships we have with work and just relationships with things like our self-esteem and our self-worth. Mm, beautiful. And what is the name Moon, Moon and Rune Wellness? Where did that come from? <laughs> so I, I have always been a spiritual person. I grew up in the uh, Northern Virginia area just outside of DC. It's a very diverse area. And there are, I've been blessed to have experienced so many different forms of spirituality. But I wanted to pick a name that really married the, the two things that I bring together for people, which is mental and spiritual wellness. And so the moon is something that through almost every culture uh, represents wisdom. And I've, you know, wisdom is a, a true spot of convergence between the mental and the spiritual. And rune it comes from uh, just the concept of really teaching people about the symbolic mind and symbolism and what an important role that plays in our mind, body, spirit, wellness, and for deeper self-understanding. So Runes are something that are basically sigils or symbols 
that have been used throughout history, uh, that they can mean all sorts of things. They can mean protection, uh, they, they can mean abundance, you know, you, you can make your own, but that basically it's to represent uh, the symbolic mind and that more irrational center of the mind that so many people are obsessed with thinking is something they need to get rid of, but is, is actually the thing that is our most uh, divinely connected part of the psyche and an incredibly important part to the, the human evolution process and just the self-actualization process and, and appreciating those uh, spiritual natures within ourselves. So wisdom and symbolism, basically, uh, were where I would put it in there and how those two come together to help people develop their intuition as well. Um, Cause that's a huge part of what I work with people on too is really reconnecting with that intuitive part of themselves that, you know, a lot of us grow up in worlds where that voice is quieted for us in ways that usually limits us or puts us in spaces and relationships that aren't as beneficial for us as opposed to if we really listened to uh, the wisdom of the intuition that we all have. Mm, amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And having said that, I know that you're certified in many different uh, practices and we're going to talk about some of them soon. But at first, I would like to ask you, how do you see psychology and spirituality how are they connected because you know you said that you've been a spiritual person um, into spirituality for quite a while but you're also a therapist and you're a psychologist so uh, how do you see the the connection the interlink between these two areas so one of the things i actually work with with people a lot which i'm sure we'll get into um, when we talk about cognitive architecture but i work with linguistics with people a lot because the words are the things we use to shape our thoughts and to, and therefore to shape our reality. Interestingly enough, the word psyche is a is a word that originally uh, as a Latin root word means soul. So it always was something that was connected. It's just been the more modern, uh, you know, highly rationalistic reductionist world that sort of separated uh, psychology or psyche from spirit. And so for me, it just feels like a natural inclination to reconnect those things and plays a lot into the concept of really reconnecting the subconscious mind or the unconscious mind with the conscious mind in a way that allows people to really become more mindful and intentional in their life instead of beings that just sort of go through the motions uh, that, that happens when you disconnect spirit from, from psyche or psychology. So it, for me, it's actually about bringing it back to the root of it, as opposed to, you know, trying to convince people that it's some new thing. Uh, but I'm also very thankful to really have worked with Jungian psychology, um, which is, you know, for people who don't know who Carl Gustav uh, Jung is, he's a psychologist that basically changed uh, the way that the world saw psychology because he really started opening up the concept of the symbolic mind or the metaphorical and interpretive mind in psychology and in things like dream interpretation um, and symbolism and what the world means to you as an individual within your own psychology, as opposed to what the, what the collective, you know, purely just what the collective consensus uh, on things are. So, you know, an example would be for all of us, this is a teal cup. Um, but at a more personal level, you know, maybe this color has deeper personal meaning for me, um, or, you know, maybe 
the shape of it reminds me of something and what that more personal meaning is plays a, a large part of uh, how you connect personal spiritual sensibilities in psychology with those more objective, uh, purely scientific aspects of, of psychology that are usually a little bit more Freudian. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. I really um, resonate with what you're, what you're saying, but also I have my own lens uh, seeing that because to me, psychology and spirituality interconnect because when we are born, we are pure soul in the human body. And then we are programmed with different patterns, different societal structures, different beliefs, right? So from this pure essence that we are and we experience life, then we have all these, um, let's say, neural pathways formed in our brain. And then it kind of gets us away from our authentic self, our soul, our higher self, um, our pure being, natural state. And then if we want to reverse it in a way, if we want to reverse this process, we need to use psychology to, and psychotherapy as well to kind of uh, de-traumatize ourselves and yeah. deprogram everything so that we can then come back more and more to this natural flow and natural state that we already are. But there has been just so many layers of psychological patterns in us that are um, on top of who we, who we are and how we want to express ourselves. So um, we already are spirit in the human body, but because we can um, reprogram ourselves through uh, psychological processes and so on, psychotherapy, and then we can come back more and more to how we act in the moment rather than having all these automations in our computer, <laughs> in a way, in our body. And neuro-linguistic programming uh, says all about that, right? Uh, how we are having the map of the world inside of us and everyone has a different map as you mentioned for every person a color means different thing or a frame or whether something is moving or not or different sounds and so on and so we, through using the reprogramming we can actually come back to who we really are and also i feel like it's uh, interconnected with the chakra system because the chakra system is uh, connected to our feelings or emotions so when we uh, for example feel safety then our first chakra is activated so the chakra is more like a spiritual term right but we can actually use emotions uh, which is more like a psychological uh, uh, theme let's say to influence our energy, influence our um, body and our field, our aura. So I feel like it's actually the same in a way, uh, psychology oh, yeah. and spirituality. It's actually the same as just a different lens of looking at the same thing, because there is nothing that is not spiritual in this world, really. Like everything is spirit. Otherwise, just what else it is? <laughs> like it is everything is spirit. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting how we need to separate th these areas and nowadays in our society i don't think that people um you know interconnect these uh, themes but it's actually really the same and um, so yeah i just wanted to also ask you about a few methods that you're using because i for example have not really heard of a cognitive remodeling therapy and i would love if you could share a little bit about that like how it works what to use it for and what are the benefits of that so cognitive remodeling therapy uh, actually plays into a lot of what you were just talking about as far as understanding the existing cognitive architecture that exists in your mind that has been built neuroplastically through your lifetime. So through things like the belief systems that you've integrated uh, through, you know, whether they're conscious or unconscious belief systems, um, the way you use language. The, the things you believe to be true about yourself and the world, for example, and how those have shaped your reality 
uh, your thought patterns and your actions and behaviors in the world. So basically cognitive remodeling therapy is all about starting out looking at the, you know, the map of the existing architecture that's in place in each person and sort of teasing out the spaces that need to be remodeled. Uh, so I work with people who have had religious trauma uh, a lot. And one of the main areas that I usually start with, with people with that who have had like more orthodox belief systems is asking them, okay, did you come from a belief system that raised you to believe that life is a punishment or, you know, or a, a space for you to suffer? And if the answer is yes, and reality has been giving you an experience that feels like suffering, okay, this is a space we need to remodel. This is, you know, a this is a part of your cognitive architecture that is not working for you. It's a choice point, right? So cognitive remodeling is also really teaching people about the alchemy of choice within the mind instead of just accepting the, the integrated belief systems. And some of these can be really simple too. Uh, on a personal level, it can be, you know, for me, I, I'm sure you feel the same way. One of the, the biggest spaces for me as a therapist is learning how to ask the right questions that give people those epiphanies, right? More so than it is about sharing like, uh, you know, information or knowledge. And so even asking people like, you know, do you believe you're intelligent? Okay, if, if not, or if it's difficult for you to say yes, why is it difficult for you to say yes? When's the first time you remember questioning your intelligence? You know, when, what led to that uh, sort of paradigm? for you, or even, uh, you know, bigger things uh, in business, especially like when I work with um, the wellness consulting with businesses, looking at the business as an entity and asking questions like, do you think that you have, like, do you have a belief that you have to work hard for your money, that it's wrong for you to earn an excellent income if you aren't, you know, working yourself to the bone? Um, and so these can be simple parts of the architecture uh, of the uh, of the brain or you know of the mind basically and how it plays into the way we see reality or that lens you were speaking of you know that really shapes the reality that we experience so if you think you're going to have to work hard for your money guess what life's going to give you you are going to have to work your butt off to you know earn, earn a dollar but then you have follow up with people and you ask is that what you really want from life no, not really, right? Everyone would like to be able to sit on the beach and earn a passive income instead. So cognitive architecture runs the gamut um, as far as, you know, the house that is pre-built. And some of this plays into, you know, the concepts of uh, phylogenetics and ontogenetics too. Uh, I also work with cognitive remodeling therapy for people who have uh, like addiction or behavioral health issues. And that some of those are sort of genetically inherited processes that made it easier for you to fall into a space of addiction or, or a certain uh, unhealthy behavior and what it means to sort of deconstruct and reconstruct those places from a place that's mental, that includes space for spirituality and spiritual enrichment that makes it more sustainable uh, when we make those changes. That isn't just about looking at like, oh, how do we go in the brain and tweak this thing? More so, how do we really integrate it at a transcendent level, at a, at a spiritual level, so that it fills every lifetime for us, not just this one that we're in right now? 
Mm, beautiful. That sounds great. <laughs> so that it feels every lifetime and not only the human form right now. That's awesome. Uh, sounds, sounds good and sounds similar to a few other types of therapy, but I guess there is a lot of similarities between all these different methods and modalities because all in all we're working with the mind and the mind works in specific ways so um yeah sounds really good the process that you're describing and how does the archetypal psychology play out in this game <laughs> so archetypal psychology is basically all about understanding uh metaphor and symbology so Archetypes are something that a lot of people know about. And in the marketing world, it's actually something that uh, you play into. So some examples of uh, archetypes are like the rebel, um, the administrator. That's me. Yeah. I'm well, the rebel for sure. <laughs> so so the, bad, the bad guy to you is usually the ruler or uh, the administrator. But the reality is that those are usually our shadow aspects that everything that we make an enemy of in the world that we view as opposition is usually actually just our shadow, the part of ourself that we exhibit and express and act in and in an unconscious way, uh, but reject as a part of ourselves as, as we're sort of walking through life and normally pick fights with. So archetypal psychology is all about teaching people about the themes and motifs and behaviors that are present in their life that they're sort of unconscious to and awakening them to the understanding of how to sort of marry or converge uh, those opposites. So uh, like for you, if you're the rebel, okay, how do you accept the, the ruler in you who, you know, the rebel all, also has that same concept, right? Of the, I have to change the world, the world is wrong, it's gotta be this way. Well, the reality is the ruler is just as dictatorial. And so finding those spaces where you can actually accept that the, the paradox of opposition as the spectrum of potential that exists within uh, the whole self is a huge part of archetypal psychology, but it also just helps you really see some of the relationships in your life uh, that are, are thematic that you can change and evolve and also see some of the things that you've you know, already lived out in, in other lifetimes through mythology, um, through metaphor and story. So whether it's seeing yourself in, in a character in Alice in Wonderland and what that person means to you, or, you know, a persona or archetype that comes from sacred scripture, or even your zodiac uh, sign. So, and, you know, I don't know about in, in your part of the world, but in the Western world, people are really obsessed with uh, over-identifying with, like, just their sun sign. And those are usually an archetype all their own. It's an important lesson. You were, you were given uh, that archetype at birth as sort of like your preconditioned programming to like, that's your biggest lesson usually for this lifetime. But transcending the concept that you're just one archetype is a large part of what I work with with uh, archetypal psychology too, is how can I accept and, and view every archetype as a part of myself to accept my wholeness instead of just, uh, you know, egoically living and breathing this one particular archetype that allows you to exist in, you know, more unconscious processes that usually lead to things that don't feel as good in your life or relationships uh, and sort of emotions that don't feel as good in your life in the long term. 
Mm, I really vibe with that because uh, to me, I describe this process a little bit differently. I see it as like parts integration, parts work, uh, where we, you know, feel into one part of us and then the opposite part of us. And it's actually interesting how you're saying about me as an example, rebel versus the ruler, because I would say that for me, the rebel came from also uh, being submissive in my life in terms of uh, my personality um, when it comes to Enneagram typology, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Enneagram, but it's my favorite typology of uh, of personality. And it's a loyalist. So it's a person that always is loyal to the rules, loyal to the family, loyal to friends. And so it's all about like following what is the rules that are given. And so then, of course, if you're a loyalist and you, do, you need to follow the rules, then there is a subconscious part of you that is like, oh, you know, screw this. <laughs> I'm not going to follow any rules because like, I don't want this shit, you know? Um, so for me, I feel like this part actually, and there is probably a dictator in me as well. And looking at my family and you know, who, who I was uh, brought up with and uh, how my father plays out, for example, as more, more of a controlling person. I'm sure I have a part of him that is also controlling inside. And so there is a, actually three, three parts, like the submissive part, the controller, and then the rebel who is just like, screw all of this, you know, screw the controls, screw the submissive part. I'm just going to do my own thing and not listen to anyone. And it's actually funny because um, I have this little story um, when everyone was emo in my, you know, secondary school um, and everyone was just wearing all these like black and white and gray and skulls everywhere and bones and everything. I was such a rebel that I was like, screw this shit. I'm just going to go to the store and buy all the colorful clothes. And I bought myself five pairs of, uh, of ties that are in different colors. And I started wearing like all kinds of colorful clothes. And even sometimes I would go for a rock concert totally in yellow, like with a Mickey Mouse on, on top. And, you know, there were only emo people all in black, like metal and stuff. And I was just like, screw this shit. I'm going to be completely different, completely opposite. Um, and then I even got a nickname Chiquita because I looked like a banana because I was like all the yellow and stuff, uh, <laughs> which is quite funny. Um, but yeah, like I, I can see that, you know, it's, it's kind of like one part that we have that allows us to be accepted and loved by our parents, by our, by our society, then creates actually the oppositional part if it's something that is more true to us, right? Because of yeah. course we want to be accepted and loved, but also we want to be ourselves however we are. So we don't want to just obey all the time. We want to express ourselves freely and uh, we want to have freedom of choice and freedom of expression and everything. So um, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's, it's so cool that, you know, you call it archetypal psychology and I call it parts integration and parts work and it's actually all the same thing um but I like how you say that you look at different archetypes in, ter in terms of like even um cartoons you can look at cartoons or you can yeah. look at some movies and so on and feel what it means to you and actually relate to um, these archetypes so that that's really really cool uh, I like it all right I like it and so having said that um I'm really curious to know uh if you, if you had the situation, and I'm pretty sure that you did, uh, where when you were giving an advice to any advice to your clients, you actually were like, oh my God, I'm actually saying this to myself. And if yes, I'll love you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love you to give a few examples of that, like how uh, it's, it's played out for you. So I think the biggest one that always hits home for me, um, we have very similar background stories, actually, as far as like, the rebel archetype and uh just to speak on that a little bit more it's sure. like for me it's come to a personal space of realizing that 
the ruler I experienced was an unhealthy ruler, but it doesn't mean that being the ruler is a bad thing. And so like, for me, it's like, okay, how can I be the ruler that I wanted that I didn't get um, and learn from the ruler I experienced so that my rebel and my ruler can like come together and make the world a better place. But I think, and interestingly enough, the biggest place they come together is in boundaries. So the person who becomes the rebel because of how submissive and loyal they were has all sorts to learn about boundaries and setting boundaries and learning how to truly hold them in a way that's healthy, uh, you know, that isn't too, too much about making an enemy of, of anyone that would question the boundaries, but is about like upholding them in a way that makes space for you and your authenticity is this really beautiful convergence for me between the rebel and the ruler that I always experience and see uh, through my clients too. Um, I think, you know, in the Western world, especially, especially there's been so much done to try and shape the human mind for the sake of, of making money that it's been interesting to see how that's interplayed, even for me in learning how to deconstruct, um, it, you know, sort of the existing ways that I was viewing and experiencing relationships in the world and what it really means to hold boundaries around protecting your authenticity as a person with, without it constantly creating uh, fights for you. So every time I have a client that I talk to boundaries, talk to about with boundaries, whether it's like in friendships or, or romantic relationships or even with their family, right? Like that's usually the biggest one for a lot of us kids who, who were the rebel is we usually had a parent that we didn't have enough boundaries with and that, and that had way too much control in our life. And, and asking, you know, every time for me, when I talk about boundaries with my clients, it's like, okay, where is this boundary needing to exist in my life? Because I can't expect my clients to uphold their boundaries if I'm not being the change I want to see in the world. So I constantly use that pretty specifically as like a self-reflection between me and my clients to ask myself that all the time is, okay, how can I be the change I want to see in the world? As in, how can I be the change I want to see in my clients or, or hope for, for my clients? Because if I can't do it, I can't possibly expect them to do it. It's not, you know, it's not a fair standard, basically. Oh, yes. I can totally relate to that because you need to walk your talk as a therapist or as <laughs> someone who helps people. You need to go through stuff as well, right? So that actually you walk the path and then you're like, okay, I've done it. So now I can help others do the, exactly the same. And it's great uh, because we are all learning all the time. And it doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. And uh, sometimes no. people can learn on our mistakes, right? Um, we can well, make mistakes. I, I jokingly say that I grew up playing a lot of sports. And one of the one of the archetypal um, relationships that helped me realize something deeper for me is the worst player usually makes the best coach, and I think the true is pretty much the same when it comes to therapy and psychology and even spirituality. Is like a lot of us that have become practitioners had to be the worst player, but it's made us the best coach because we were really in there, we really hit the nitty gritty, and we really experienced those things and suffered through those things that we help our clients through. So it's not just because we read about how to deal with something in a book, it's because we actually went through it and experienced it uh, in life. And so I've always held on to that as like, it's okay, I was not the best, I was not the best player along, along the road of life when it came to taking care of myself and you know my own mental and spiritual wellness until 
uh, you know, this path really opened up for me. And now I get to be my own coach and, and a better coach uh, and guide for others too. Beautiful. And uh, having said that, I would like to come back a little bit to this topic of boundaries, because I feel like, as you said, a lot of people express boundaries in terms of anger, like, oh, don't cross my boundary. <laughs> But it's, all, it's already done. It's already crossed then, right? But how to express boundaries in a healthy way, like holding the standard of love, because usually when we are, are um, you know, expressing it, Oftentimes we are already either tired or uh, frustrated or irritated or angry or whatever. And I would like to give some advice to people who maybe would like to be nicer, but they still struggle because they're still their inner rebel is like taking over the steering wheel. Um, so what would you say to these people that, you know, to that want to express themselves more in a calm, kind way, but still holding the standard of not letting anyone cross their own boundary? So I, one of the things that's interesting is the first important thing that I always talk about with people is understanding the difference between a boundary and a wall. So like walls that we build are things that actually limit us, that keep us from relationships, that keep us from our growth, that make us stagnant. Whereas boundaries are the things that are intended to make space for and clear out the things that haven't been working. But one of the most interesting things about boundaries is a lot of people think or, or sort of have this subconscious notion that boundaries are about action. And realistically, boundaries, the healthiest boundaries tend to be more about learning the spaces of inaction that, that are healthiest for you. So, you know, those moments when you want to be reactive, having that space to take a deep breath and pause and, and like, Tell yourself that you can be impartial to it, that you don't have to engage with it. And, and the level of inaction there that is healthy for you is, I think, one of the things that's like one of those biggest aha moments for people with boundaries, right? You know, especially with anger. Like if someone makes you angry, okay, I can react to this and I can give in to, you know, the anger and I can engage with this person and, and, and make this something that I'm more entangled with. Or I can have a boundary of inaction and impartiality to it. I can pause and observe that I want to react, but that the boundary is an internal space for me to say, not worth it. I deserve to not engage with this energy or to not engage with this person. And then sort of taking, taking the time to self-reflect and introspect and ask yourself, you know, where those spaces are in your life. This is actually something that's hugely um, important as far as understanding the feminine principle within the mind, which from a spiritual standpoint is actually everything to do with the negative or the yin and appreciating that sometimes being negative or minusing things from your life or refusing things uh, from your life is the healthiest aspect to create balance rather than, you know, being really, really focused on trying to force yourself to stay positive in certain situations. So boundaries really are that space where people learn about the power of inaction over action and what it means to become responsive uh, instead of re reactive or reactionary to things that in the past have, you know, pushed past their boundaries or torn down their boundaries because of uh, their willingness to be reactive and engage with the person that crossed it. 
Mm, I love how you said that boundary and wall is different because I feel like sometimes people associate it and you can have a boundary and not have a wall and that's really really great I love that you mentioned it um, amazing and so if people are curious about you and they would like to see more of your content and what you're up to what is the best way to find you and follow you So uh, I always encourage everyone to check out my website, www.moonandrune.com. I have loads of uh, like free resource information there. I have a section called self-discovery that has just lots of writings and blog posts that I've done that are about things, you know, practices or spiritual or psychological or philosophical concepts that have helped me along the way. And that I've noticed, you know, have helped a lot of my clients along the way. And, and so I urge people to check that out and just see what resonates with them. And then you can also uh, find me on Instagram at Mira Taylor Wellness or at Moon and Rune Wellness. Uh, that's my personal account. Sometimes I share like more fun uh, personal things there on my personal one. But then my business account, I usually share something at least once a day that's, you know, some sort of quote for deeper uh, self-connection or awareness or some sort of uh, spiritual or psychological uh, concept or understanding to just share with people in a way that they can implement things a little bit at a time, even if they're not doing session work. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I hope that people will check out uh, all your work because I've checked it out and I liked it, what you have to offer. So thanks again, sending you massive love and gratitude uh, for this talk. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to connect with your audience and incredibly appreciative of the opportunity to talk with a like-minded individual. (laughs) 